So throughout history, those who have been aware that the end of their life is approaching have, have tended to reflect in a formal way on the meaning of their life. What does it mean to live life? What lessons have been, been learned? What have I valued in life? What have I gotten wrong? Uh, what, what really matters? Right? There's, there's something that an awareness of death uh, brings. It has a way of bringing these things into perspective. And we see this in a lot of the dying requests of, of famous people. Take, for example, the, the conquering Greek ruler, king, Alexander the Great. He, he famously made three very specific requests as he was pondering the end of his life. First, he said, quote, I want my physicians, my doctors, to carry my body alone because I want people to know that no doctor can cure people's illnesses, especially when they face death. No physician or doctor is as powerful to save people from the clutch of death. So don't let people take life for granted. Second, I want the path leading to my grave to be strewn with gold, silver, and precious stones while my body is being carried to be buried because I want people to know that not even a fraction of gold will come with me. I spent my whole life chasing power and wealth. Whatever earned in the earth remains here. I want people to realize that it's a complete waste of your life in time to run after wealth and power. And then third and finally, he, he made this very strange request. I want both my hands to be kept dangling out of my coffin. That's weird. Because I want people to know that we came empty-handed in this world and we will go empty-handed. And tragically, his, his dying words were this, when you bury my body, don't build any monument and keep my hands outside so that the world knows that the person who won the whole world had nothing in his hand while dying. Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, had everything the world had to offer. But in the end, as he reflected, he realized, I've wasted my life. Right? Well, in Genesis 48 this morning, as we inch towards the end of the book, we just have a, 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 we're, we're, we're facing the finish line. Right? We're hearing from Jacob as he approaches his death. And he too has dying requests. And he too is is reflecting on his life as he is ill and and nearing the end of his 147-year journey on earth. But unlike Alexander the Great and many others throughout church history, Jacob doesn't look back or forward with despair. In fact, for a man, if you've been with us, for a man who has been um, quite depressing in his talk about death through, through the last several chapters of Genesis, this is a surprisingly happy chapter as Jacob nears the end. And what we see in Jacob here is, is the truth of Psalm 90, verse 12, sort of being played out in his life. So teach us, the psalmist says, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So Jacob knows the end is drawing near, and he asks his son Joseph to, to come near to him. Joseph comes to visit him with Joseph's sons, Jacob's grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, that Jacob may bless them. And as he does this, he's recognizing the goodness of God in his life as he's imparting blessing to others. 
So, so here's what we want to do this morning. There's a lot here. There's a lot here that culturally doesn't make sense to us to sift through. But what we want to see here, as we sort of paraphrase Jacob, is what are his dying statements as he comes to the end? And what lessons can we learn from him? And I'd submit to you that as we look at this chapter, we see three end-of-life lessons from Jacob. First, he declares to us, God has kept his promises to me. We see that in verses 1 through 4 as Jacob remembers and recounts the promises of God to him, to his son Joseph. And second, God has blessed me that I may be a blessing to others. We see this in verses 5 through 16 as Jacob adopts and blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then third and finally, God's ways are not my ways. We see this in verses 17 through 22 in the very strange way that Jacob crosses his hands to bless these sons. So we can sum up Jacob's lessons to us in those three statements. God has kept his promises to me. God has blessed me that I may be a blessing. And God's ways are not my ways. And these aren't These aren't brand new truths that just sort of beamed into Jacob's mind and heart at the end of his life, right? We've been walking with him along this journey. These are hard-learned lessons from a sinner, a sufferer, a saint, just like you and me. And so we we can learn from him. We don't need to wait till our, our deathbed to consider these truths, right? We too need to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom that trusts in God's promises, that aims to bless others, and that acknowledges his ways above our own. So that's our our goal this morning. That's where we're headed. So first, what do we see as we jump into chapter 48? God has kept his promises to me. So verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he, Joseph, took him, his two sons, with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told Jacob, Your son Joseph has come. And Israel summoned his strength and sat up, in the bed. So Joseph hears that his dad is about to die, and as was custom, he wanted the blessing of his father on his sons. And that's the theme not just of this chapter, but of next next week as well. It's the end of his life, and he's blessing his family. So Joseph takes his, his sons, and this really sets up the scene for this week uh, and next week as well. And Jacob begins, he doesn't just say, great, here are my grandsons, I'm old, here's the blessing, move on. No, he begins by remembering and recounting God who made and kept his promises to him. So he tells Joseph in verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. This is not new, right? This is the repeated time and time again promise in the book of Genesis. We have the participants of this covenant promise. God has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this family. And then we have the parts of this covenant promise. He's going to provide people. This family is going to grow. And he's going to give them a promised Land, and we realize we, we read also that it's not just a physical land here, but there are everlasting implications to this. Well, who made this promise? Well, notice what Jacob says. He says, God Almighty made this promise. El Shaddai, 
one of his favorite titles for God. And he, he chooses this name because El Shaddai, this name, emphasizes the might and power and sufficiency of God over and above the weakness and frailty of man. That's what Jacob's saying when he calls God El Shaddai. It's as if he's saying, listen, Joseph, everything I'm about to tell you, everything about this promise that you've heard of, that you know of, that your brothers know of, all of it is from my all-sufficient God. None of it is because of me. If it weren't for El Shaddai, none of this would be. This is important for us. Before Jacob reflects on the what, he first reflects on the who. He's not just saying, here's what God has done for me, me, me. Here's what God can give to to me. He's saying, the all-sufficient El Shaddai is the foundation of this promise for us. I think this is important as we think of the life of of Jacob, right? Because I think there was a time in in Jacob's life where the scheming, self-sufficient man, Jacob, would have gladly attributed his success to himself, right? Hey, I'm the one that tricked my brother Esau out of that birthright. I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm the one that partnered with mom and deceived dad into giving me the blessing, right? And I think that's the temptation for all of us. As we consider the promises of God, what God offers us, the temptation is to look at the good in our lives and look at ourselves and say, you know what? I deserve that. I did that. But now Jacob has been matured by years and years of ups and downs. The grace of God has shaped him and humbled him and sanctified him through a lifetime. And so he says, son, it is all of God's grace. The promises of God are not because I deserve them, but because El Shaddai has given them to me. So then he goes on and he recounts God's appearance to him at, at Luz. And if you remember back in Genesis 28, this is where Jacob went. And renamed this place Bethel. This is where the God-given vision of of the Led Zeppelin song, right? The Stairway to Heaven appeared. This came first, by the way, before Stairway to Heaven. And he sees angels descending and ascending. It's God's way of saying, listen, through this family, I am going to bring heaven to earth. And earth is going to come to heaven, right? And then he, he, after this vision, he wrestles God. All through the night. And he, he prevails, but God humbles him. You remember, he touches his hip. His hip comes out of, of socket. This is a definitive moment for him. So Jacob's going back, and he's recounting this to Joseph. And God tells him there at Luz, at Bethel, that his family would continue to grow. He gives him this promise again that Abraham and Isaac had received into this nation that will receive this land. He's recounting the promise. Now what's interesting about this is Joseph knows all of this. Right? He knows this. So why repeat it? Well, I think it's, it's his way of telling Joseph and his grandsons, listen, I want you to know God keeps his promises. He has kept them. He is keeping them. And after I'm gone, he will fulfill and keep his promises to his people. This is why, if you look for a moment at the last verse of chapter 48, 
verse 22, Jacob gives Joseph the one portion of the land in Canaan that Jacob personally conquered. Verse 22, moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now that seems strange. It's this little piece of land, this little mountainside in the promised land. Well, what, what is, what's the purpose of that? Well, it's Jacob's way of saying, listen, we have the land. I'm giving you this teeny portion of land, but God has given it to us and it's only going to spread, Joseph. God keeps his promises. Or if you look back in last week, chapter 47, verse 27, we read, the Israel, uh, thus Israel, Jacob and his family, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were what? Fruitful and multi- multiplied greatly. In other words, Joseph, you, you've seen it. Not only do we have this sort of down payment of the land, but the family is growing. God is multiplying us. God has kept and is keeping his promises to me. That's what Jacob is saying here. And Christian, he has done, he has kept his promises and will keep his promises to you and I as well. You can bank on that. Now the timeline will not be what you prefer. You won't always see it from his perspective. Your life will not, I can promise you this, your life will not turn out the way that you expect. You will certainly face disappointments. But... You can be sure of this. He is a promise-keeping God. God keeps his promises. Now, what what are some of these for for us? Now, the list is is endless, right? But but think of some of these for, for those who have trusted in Christ. What promises has God given us? Well, friend, are you are you ever in need of forgiveness? Of course you are. God promises to forgive your sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You ever feel lonely? Right? God promises never to forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's a promise of God. Or do do you ever wonder if your prayers are hitting the ceiling? I pray constantly. I pray faithfully. God, I've asked you like you've told me to, but I just don't feel that you're hearing anything. God promises to hear our prayers. 1 John 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Or here's a big one. Do you ever worry about provision? Right? You're like, man, inflation's going up. Things are getting more expensive. How am I going to afford this? What's, what's it going to be like for my kids? God promises to meet every single one of our needs. Every single one. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
Or do you ever look at your life and see all the difficulties and all the pain and all the struggle and you wonder how in the world does this fit into God's good plan? God promises to work all things for your good, Romans 8, 28. And we know, listen to that, can you say that? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God has kept his promises to Jacob. And God has kept his promises and will keep his promise to every single one of his children. Therefore, we can have confidence in him in whatever we face. And one day, by God's grace, we'll look back in amazement at all of the ways God has been faithful and kept his promises to us. So that's Jacob's first lesson for us. Second, as he goes on to bless, God has blessed me that I may be a blessing. God has blessed me that I may be a blessing. So we have the setting, and then in verse 5, we start to read of this blessing of these two sons. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Verse 9, Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. So what's happening here is before Jacob formally blesses the sons of Joseph, and that's what happens in verse 8. When he says, Who are these? He knows who they are. It's part of this formal ceremony of adopting and, and then blessing the son. So before he blesses them, he formally adopts them. Now that might seem strange to us because we know Jacob has plenty of sons, right? And we know that he's going to bless these sons. And we see that next week. So why adopt two more? Well, there's a hint here in, at the end of verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Okay? So we see this parallel here. And what's happening is Jacob is replacing Reuben and Simeon as the firstborn and secondborn sons. That's what the adoption's for. Now we say, why? Well, we have to go back and remember that Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, greatly dishonored Jacob through sexual sin with Jacob's concubine, Bilna. And so we get a hint of this next week. Jacob says, in Genesis 49, verse 3, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He lost his birthright because of this. So Jacob is saying, because of his heinous sin, he has lost uh, the right of the firstborn. Okay, well, what about Simeon, the secondborn son? And you guys know this if you've read the Bible. Like, everybody's resume is really, really messed up, right? The same is true with Simeon. Chapter 34. Simeon and his brother Levi, they commit genocide in violent reaction to a sin committed against their sister. They go beyond executing justice. 
and, and choose violence and vengeance instead of entrusting the Lord to it. So, so Jacob says of them, chapter 49, verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So what Jacob is doing is he's putting Joseph, by way of extension, Joseph's sons in the place of these two sons. Okay? That's what's happening here. First Chronicles 5 sums it up for us with regards to Reuben when it says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So think of it this way. All, 12, all, all of this family are recipients of the blessing in some way. Remember, Judah is the line that will lead to Christ. That hasn't changed. But what's happening here is these first two sons, and this, the focus is on Reuben, is he's replaced as the firstborn son, and the birthright is given to these two sons. Okay? So that's what this sort of strange, they shall be mine thing is. That's what's happening here. That's the purpose of this. So then we read on in verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them, both Ephraim in his right hand, this is important in a moment, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh, Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this long day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless the boys. Okay, so he's giving the blessing. Now, we're going to talk about this cross-handed thing in a moment. But here's what I want you to focus on. Is how Jacob blesses. What words he uses. Before just saying, here, bless you, he acknowledges the own blessing that he has received from God. You see that? Verses 15 and 16. He is doing what has been a part of the promise all along. Long before Abraham. This, is, this was God's goal in the garden. God blessed Adam and Eve as image bearers with their presence so that they may then share in that blessing with others. What did God tell Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3? I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you are blessed so that you may bless others. And notice what he highlights here. He says, this is how God has blessed me. First, I'm blessed to have God as my shepherd all my long life. Verse 15. This is the first time we see God referred to as a shepherd in Scripture. Jacob is adopting this image that he knows well, and he is saying, God has been my protector, my provider, my leader. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd also goes after stray sheep. And brings them back in the fold. He says, that's what God has done with me. Sheep tend to be very wayward and not very smart. Right? I saw a YouTube video this week of a shepherd pulling. I mean, it took like three minutes to get this 
the sheep out of this ditch. So he gets the sheep out of the ditch, boom, sets it on the field. It runs that way for about three seconds, takes a U-turn, and jumps right back into the ditch. And the shepherd's like, oh, my goodness. That's called the Christian life, right? Jacob's saying, that's me. And God has been a faithful shepherd to me. He has blessed me with his presence. Then he goes on to say, not only has God been a shepherd for me, but he changes the imagery here. He says, he has been my redeemer. Verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. So he shifts from this livestock imagery to redemption, which is a monetary image. What does it mean to redeem something? It means to buy something back. It's as if he's saying, I was once enslaved and owned by evil, but God has redeemed me. He's purchased me. He's made me his own. He is my shepherd redeemer. And that's the blessing that he passes along to Joseph and by way of extension to Ephraim and Manasseh. The question for us is, do we know this blessing? Do you know the blessing of a relationship with the shepherd redeemer, of being rescued from your sins, of being cared for and provided for by God our Savior? And this theme, of course, continues all throughout the Bible of God as shepherd and and redemption, but it's always meant to be passed on to others. After Easter, we'll start digging into 1 Peter and listen to what Peter says about this, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, that's a blessing. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's the blessing. And he says, here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Translation, you have been blessed, followers of Jesus, so that you may be a blessing to others. So that you may share that good news with others. So we see some immediate practical applications here, right? Especially for parents. Because that's the scene here. There's a grandfather blessing his son and these grandsons. So parents, grandparents, are you proclaiming the excellencies of the shepherd king to your children? Are you recognizing how God has blessed you so that you can bless others? Teaching them the gospel modeling humility, repentance, and faith, pointing them to the Savior. And in doing so, you are imparting, you are passing on a treasure far greater than anything this world has to offer. Charles Spurgeon says of this, if you wish to give your children a blessing when you die, be a blessing to them while you live. If you would make your last words worth the hearing, let your whole life be worth the seeing. Bless your children, point them to the shepherd redeemer. There's also something here for, for children, kids. By the way, great job hanging out with in here. You guys do a great job every week. But listen, as your parents aim to help you know Jesus, as, as they point you to Christ, as they pray for you and bring you to church, they are giving you the greatest gift you could ever have. Right? Listen to them. They have been blessed by God and they are trying to impart that blessing to you. And then for all of us as as Christians, as we think, what does it mean that we're blessed to be a blessing? There are so many ways we can answer that question. 
with hospitality, being kind to those around us, but there is a distinctly Christian way that we must impart the blessing, and that is by speaking the truth of the gospel to others. It's by mission, it's by evangelism, by proclaiming the excellencies of the shepherd redeemer. This is why Romans 10 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They'll have the blessing of knowing God. But how then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So I think one of the clear ways, as we see Jacob passing on a blessing to the next generations, one of the clearest ways we can apply that to our life is to say, we have been blessed with the salvation of God so that we may now take it and bless others by speaking the gospel to those around us. So just ask yourself, who in my life needs to hear the good news of the shepherd redeemer? I've been blessed by him. How can I pass on that blessing to others? And then third and finally, what does Jacob tell us? He says, God's ways are not my ways. God has kept his promises to me. God has blessed me that I may be a blessing to others. And God's ways are not my ways. So look again back at verse 13 and 14 in the specific way Jacob blesses the boys. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right, and he brought them near him. Okay? So, so do you see what Joseph's doing here? He's, he's positioning his sons to receive the right blessing. The firstborn, Manasseh, is going to receive the right hand of blessing in, in Joseph's mind, and Ephraim is going to see, receive the, the less prominent blessing. That's Joseph's plan. And this may seem strange to us. We're, we, we can probably imagine, you know, a grandfather uh, nearing death and speaking words of wisdom and, and embracing his, his grandchildren. But this is a very formal scene. Okay? This, is a, this is a known practice of laying the right hand, um, which signified prominence and blessing upon a firstborn child. The closest thing I can think of is in a couple weeks ago, um, I was in court. And no, I didn't commit a crime. It's a very long story. I was a witness, and I was surprised um, because all I know about um, what happens in courtroom is from TV. So, but I ra- when I came in and sat down on the witness stand, they asked me to raise my right hand, right? There's just something about the right hand. So that's sort of been passed down to us. Uh, that, that means it's very significant, and I had to recite the whole thing, right? So that'd be, that'd be the closest thing I can think of of a similarity here. But this right hand means prominence, and superiority. It's the superior blessing. So Joseph sets them up that way, but Jacob does something strange. What does he do? Now, he can't see very well, so I I would think he probably knows what Joseph is going to try and do, because that's what everyone would do. But Jacob crosses his hand, so the right hand of blessing is on Ephraim, and the left is on Manasseh. Okay? That means the younger one is going to receive the promise of the firstborn. And Joseph is displeased. The language here is he's angry. He's exasperated that he would give the firstborn blessing to the younger son. He tries to change his hands. Jacob says, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. So why why would Jacob or Joseph be so upset by this? Well, he's essentially thinking in worldly ways. He's saying, dad, no, no, 
this is not how it's supposed to be done. This is, this is how everybody does it. You're supposed to bless the firstborn, right? But haven't we seen all throughout Genesis that God's ways are not our ways in this? The younger Abel's offering was accepted over Cain's. The younger Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Even, even Joseph had a place of prominence over his older brothers. And now here, the younger Ephraim is chosen over Manasseh. What is God telling us here? I think it's God's way of overturning our worldly expectations and showing us that His ways are not our ways. He doesn't accomplish things in the way we think or the way the world thinks they should be accomplished. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I think now, in his old age, at the end of his life, Jacob is finally submitting to this hard-learned lesson. God's ways are not my ways. Now, all of us know what it's like to look at situations in our life and say, God, I don't think this is the way it should be. And we're tempted, just like Joseph, to, to grow frustrated when the, the career path doesn't turn out the way we planned, right? When the relationship doesn't turn out the way we planned or the, the marriage is not what we expected or, or the kids didn't turn out the way we had hoped or the finances are not what we thought they would be. And the temptation is to say, God, you're doing something wrong here. To become frustrated and exasperated. And the response of our heart in those moments reveals what we truly believe about the sovereignty and providence of God. See, every, every disappointment, every unmet expectation presents an opportunity for us to reflect on this question. Do I believe that God's ways are better than mine? And will I trust Him even when I don't understand? Or am I more influenced by worldly ideas of, of prominence and, and blessing? You, you remember Alexander the Great's last words? He spent his life gaining all the worldly blessings he could, following the world's ways, wealth, status, land, power, influence, so on. He got his way. But what did he say at the end of his life? Keep my hands outside so that the world knows that the person who won the whole world had nothing in his hand while he died. He essentially says, I did it my way and I wasted my life. That almost sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? What profit... What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So in, in doing this, among other things, Jacob is declaring by faith to future generations, God's people will not be defined by the ways of the world, but by God's ways. And God will bring blessing to the world in the most unexpected way you can imagine. And friends, God did exactly this on the cross of Calvary. You see it? Jesus, the firstborn son, was the only one deserving of full blessing. He was full of righteousness. He was without sin. You and I certainly do not deserve 
the right hand of God's blessing. We've scorned God's ways. We deserve his hand of judgment. But what happened on the cross? When Christ lived a sinless life for us and died on the cross in our place, the hand of judgment that we deserved was placed on him, the undeserving one. In the hand of blessing, the right hand of prominence was placed upon those who would believe in Christ, that they may receive his righteousness. That's the cross-handed way of God. And when he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, he secured exactly the promise that Jacob recounts here, an everlasting possession for all who believe. Paul sums this up well in 2 Corinthians 5.21. What happened when Jesus lived and died? For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we sinners might become the righteousness of God. You see it? And praise God that His ways are not our ways. Praise God. So brothers and sisters, we, we don't know when that last day will come. We don't know if we'll have this opportunity like, like Jacob did to impart life lessons to, to loved ones in this way. But we can lay hold of these truths laid out for us. Because of Christ, we can rely on God's promises because all of them find their fulfillment in Jesus who was crucified for us. Right? We can, we can live in such a way that recognizes that God's blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. Because we've been so richly blessed by our shepherd redeemer and we can trust in God's unlikely cross-handed ways. And when that day comes, whenever it will be, we won't look back. If we cling to these things, we won't look back and, and say, I've wasted my life, it was empty. But instead, we'll look back with amazement as Jacob did with God's promise-keeping grace to us. Let's pray together.